being a mathematician. Yes, yes. And I want to make sure that that connection was out there for you. All right. Um, so uh, we can actually talk about Dhamma then in kind of mathematical terms. Um, and that uh, one of the big qualities of mathematics is the equation sign. Okay, then in fact, that's how everything got started, that one plus one equals two and two plus two equals four. But we kind of assume that we understand what that relationship sign is and that we've got a number of them in math, like greater than, greater than or equal, less than, less than and equal, equivalency, etc., like that. Uh, and we we generally can apply that to real things like one apple plus one apple is two apples and two apples plus two apples is four apples and that happens time after time after time but the problem is is that apples are not equal to one another mm -hmm that they weigh differently, they're different colors, uh, one may be cut, um, uh, one may be an applesauce, that kind of thing. And so um, the, the idea then is, is that we need to understand the relationships between things at a deeper level rather than the simplistic level of having one attribute and then using that in in mathematics then in fact that's what's made um uh let us say higher mathematics so complicated is because there's really that kind of complication in there and that we teach children starting off at a very simple level without um let us say confusing the child with the fact that apples are not equal to apples in all cases. That there's more complex uh, nature there. This is uh, back then to the law of Idia Papajayata, which then is talking about that relationship exists, relationships exist and the relationships that things have with one another change things. If, they, if that was completely unchangeable, then it would have no relationships because the relationships themselves change things. And because everything is related, interrelated one with another, that means that everything is subject to change, that nothing is fixed. So, Zach, let me ask you this question. What do you know that does not change? Can you think of a concept? Yeah, what does not change? I can't think of anything that doesn't change. Well, we can play a game like change doesn't change. I mean, yes, yes. <laughs> Except that change is the thing that's changing the most because the relationships are changing. 
And so change doesn't operate the same way. I mean, you can walk in the house and scream at the top of your lungs of how bad a day was, and everybody is bored with you and doesn't listen. And you can walk into the house the next day, say the same thing, and now everybody is paying close attention. Maybe it's because they had a bad day today, you know. And so things get really complicated like that. So if we look at things as a great big picture, the big, biggest, biggest picture that we can have, we have the term Dhammakai. Now the word Dhammakai, actually the word Kai, uh, means body, but we're talking about a body of knowledge, not a little body, but the whole show, a big body of water like the Atlantic Ocean, or the body of the Dhamma, the big Dhamma, is like everything. So, David, glad to see you. Hey, nice to see you. Hello. We're we're playing with the word Dhamma right now. What is it? So, a lot of definitions on that. All right. So <laughs> we're we're into Dhammakai, and Dhammakai means the whole body of the Dhamma and our relationship with it. So, in a way, then we can think of that in Buddhism there is a God. What is this God? The God is the Dhammakai, and that our relationship then with it is Idiopapajayata. And that when we really get in touch with reality as it is, it actually is quite marvelous that all through the ages, people have been extolling and talking about how marvelous God is, and nobody's got a good definition of God. That in fact, one of the major problems that we have with the word God is, is that we personify it and personalize it. And one of the common then um, uh, ways of looking at God um, actually goes back to uh, Zeus sitting on an ivory throne with a great big beard and a, and a uh, uh, what do they call it, a, uh, a trident mm-hmm. that, is, that is also a lightning bolt when he throws it. Okay, now this comes out of old mythology, but that mythology and that Greek religion existed all over the place. In fact, the the Roman religion just kind of took Greek religion wholesale and just added new names to it. (laughs) Well, that happened all over the place. So the beginnings of Christianity also had that there. This is why when uh, Christians began to start talking about um, God, they didn't have um, any other context other than the context that the people already had, which was a little God. And so Mount Olympics is a little heaven. And um, oh, all of the uh, the ones around it, you know, Hermes and uh, Achilles and uh, all, all of those uh, ancient Greeks were also looking at it. Um, basically, they used it as an archetype 
Carl Jung was really big on finding out that ancient Greek religion was a, a storytelling of personalities. And so that they would put a personality on a particular God to uh, e exalt or to make firm that that kind of um, reality or that kind of uh, persona. And so uh, actually then when Freud and Byrne and all of Freud's students came along, they, uh, in fact, Jung was one of the Freud students. In order to get a handle on psychology, which is nothing but personality disorders, they went back to the ancient Greeks then to get their archetypes for various personalities, and we still use those words. I mean, Psyche was one of those dudes, Narci, uh, uh, narcissistic. Those are all old Greek words that were that were used. Um, and so, um, when when we really understand the Dhamma, part of that has to do with understanding personalities and personality views but not the way that it's done in Greek uh, or the Greek tradition, nor in uh, modern Western, because we leave those things as defined and fixed. Right? Zeus, we know who he was. Okay, Athena, uh, the Vestal Virgins, we know who they were and what they did and all of that kind of stuff. And that when Christianity came by, we took in that sort of mentality in order then the big mistake that was made was is that we humans, we whatever times we're in, modern humans, the moment uh, of reality is that these, these archetypes, these personalities that come out of the past that described how people are, are fixed. They're solid. And that uh, uh, then Christianity uses that with the idea of all sheep have gone astray, each one in his own way. They also talk about it. Who are you to be good? Only God is good. That you need their Jesus. Well, guess what? Jesus is also just a personality. Now, various people in various groups have various parts of personality hung on him, so much so that often the, uh, the Jesus that one group uh, has is not exactly the same Jesus as the other guys have. In fact, there's kind of a joke about it, and that is, is that the Catholics keep putting Jesus back up on the cross. The Christians are the Baptists keeps grabbing him pulling him off of that cross, put him in a white robe and shoot him like a rocket up into the air, only for the Catholics to grab him by the toe, pull him back down and put him back on that cross. All right. So even within the traditions of Christianity, we can see that this issue of who someone is, this Jesus dude is not the same to all people then in fact, he is um, changing over times that the medieval art and the medieval Jesus, not the same as the ones that we have now. 
that time that Jesus over time these archetypes change, and yet we're not aware of it because we're told that it that it doesn't change, and that um, this also because we think that things don't change, it gives us the idea that we can tell the future. All of it's going to be the same. And we can tell the future. So this gives ideas like destiny, providence, um, uh, things that are going to be fixed and that you can't change it. Have You have no doubt, everybody here has heard the idea of destiny. Mm-hmm. Okay. And that it ultimately is what it's pointing out to is, is that you can't change. Your life story was written already. And that you can't change. What that means then is, is that if you can't change, you're already a victim just because you can't change. You want to change, you can't change. That's a victimhood. Now, the most important part of that is, is that then we lose the ability to change is because we think we know who we are. And this is one of the major teachings of the Buddha is, is that things do change. That's what relationship is all about, that everything is subject to change. Everything, for instance, gets born, grows up, gets old, starts to break down, and then falls apart and dies. And that happens with Toyotas, it happens with BMWs, it happens with um, uh, administrations, it happens with law firms. I have just recently watched the death of a huge law firm. That happens. In fact, it's not just that, but if we don't like it, we call it shit happens. <laughs> that when shit happens, um, that means that we feel out of control with it, that we have no control over it. And the reality is, is that we may not have control over what actually happened, but it depends upon what personality that we have in the moment that determines our response and our reaction to what happened. And that your personality changes. Sometimes you feel like a nut, sometimes you don't. Sometimes you're happy, sometimes you're sad, sometimes you're in grief, sometimes you're angry. And that we often uh, go through those cycles depending upon the relationship between my personality or individual's personality and reality as it actually is and what we make of it. So if we look at Dhamma then in that way, we can actually bring it down to just um, um, a pronoun. (laughs) And that the pronoun that I'm going to give you for Dhamma is the pronoun, the word thing. And so in that regard, the Buddha Dhamma is nothing but the Buddha's thing. That's his thing, the Buddha Dhamma. All right. And so any Dhamma then means anything. 
And when you have the whole collection of all of the anythings, the whole body of it all, that's the Namakai. Or the Namakaya. It's got the whole show, all of them things there, but that each one of them, those things, is a Dharma. Okay. And so um, there's another word, by the way, that is both similar in its structure, similar in the time that it came to usage and has a similar definition. And that's the word Tao. Okay, like the Tao Te Ching. You've heard that word, okay? And that the opening verse of the Tao Te Ching uh, that is attributed to uh, Lao Tzu is that the, the Tao that can be said is not the Tao. Now, what they're pointing at here is, is that, yes, uh, ordinary people will understand that and then think that it's just mystical or it's just above definition. But the reality is, is that the Tao that is cannot be said because the Tao is a moving target and the Tao has changed by the time you've described it. That the mind works that fast and so, um, and, and reality works that fast. That in fact, the physicists are now beginning to open because they've got so many new frontiers with the, uh, the the James Webb telescope and what now, but they are actually opening up a new frontier that they call causality. Now, what is causality? Whatever it is that they haven't discovered yet actually is what determines things like the speed of light and what is space and what is the strong nuclear force. What is energy? What is matter? Is because these things were caused into being. What causes it all? What's this rhythm <clears throat> all about? Not where did it get started? Because whatever happened so long ago, we don't have any clue. In fact, that's one of the big problems with saying that there was a big bang, because we're not sure that there was a big bang. But in fact, the whole concept of the expanding universe that if you go backwards, goes back to a singularity may not be correct. And here's the reason why is, is that the, uh, the James Webb telescope has now gotten a good look at galaxies that are way, way out there. They are out there so far that it's back to the beginning of the universe. And yet these galaxies that they're finding out there are already fully formed. Wait a minute. It took hundreds of billions, millions of years to form a galaxy, to form a star. And yet these stars that are, and these galaxies way out there are fully formed spiral galaxies, which kind of throws a wrench in the whole idea of a big bang or a beginning or a start off. And something else is kind of interesting about that, and that is, is that the Vatican has kept an observatory for quite a long time, and they do observation and whatnot like that. And it was actually a Catholic priest that came up with the Big Bang Theory, not the title of the word Big Bang, but just uh, the concept that things started 
from an individual thing. And in fact, we don't know that. We don't know a lot of stuff. That this is actually part of Buddhism that can be understood is, is that there is so much stuff that we think we know when in fact we don't. And it's theory upon theory upon theory that that's what's happened with mathematics, in fact. Is that sometimes it goes too far without any evidence. That's happened with string theory. They're still trying to prove string theory. They're still trying to prove quantum theory. And they haven't gotten it proven yet because they don't have quite the, the, the stuff to do it. But it's a nice way of looking at it. At least the humans can go around thinking that they understand what's going on instead of recognizing that we don't yet. We don't really know what's going on at those kind of levels. That when when numbers get very, very large, the ordinary child will go to silly words like infinity. But the reality is, is that we don't have the tools, we don't have the capabilities of being able to see small things or fast things. We just can't see it. And so we make stuff up about it. And we get new instruments like electron microscopes and we're going down and we're looking at things like that and we make new discoveries. And every time we make a new discovery, what that means is the old discoveries um, manipulations that humans did have to be changed because what we discovered was not what we thought we were going to find. <laughs> All right, so if we could use that at that microscopic level and we don't really understand what causality is, we don't know. Can we still be happy? Because I imagine there's quite a few physicists that are really, really unhappy that they don't understand everything yet. Well, if we understand that the Dhammakai is so vast that it is beyond human comprehension, at least what human minds we have now, and who knows what the future is going to be. The question is, how do we handle the Dhamma that is right here right now rather than way off into the past and way off into the future now this is kind of an interesting point i've looked at it from the uh the scientific model but this is basically where people get stuck this is where religions get stuck why because they want to know what started it all what was the beginning and what is the end and all we have is a middle all we've got is the middle. Can we be happy not knowing the beginning and not knowing the end? In other words, we don't know where we got on, how we got on this train, but here we are, and we don't know where the train is going. Can we still enjoy the ride? <laughs> because the complexity that put our reality that I'm calling a train right now together is way too complex. Now, dogs, they don't worry about that complexity. It's the humans that try to put things together to figure things out like that. And that's one of the reasons why we wind up being so unhappy and so miserable is because we can't figure things out the way that we want to figure things out. We want to know. Okay, so... Um, I mean, the number of examples of that is huge. 
Um, an example would be that some someone comes to me and says, oh, I just walked out of that bar over there where they're trash talking you big time. <laughs> and now we want to know. I want to know all about it. <laughs> Who's trash talking me? What do they say? You know, that kind of stuff. And the reality is, is that even if you were there, you still wouldn't know all of what happened. You wouldn't be able to read the minds of the people who were speaking. And so uh, we have to leave it at that level of ignorance. And yet we as humans have been taught from childhood, like with mathematics, we really want to know. Children are really super curious. We are so curious. We just want to know and want to know this and want to know that. And we wind up being disappointed because things are too vast, too big, too hard to understand. And there's practical aspects of that because we don't really know even how to handle this particular moment, especially when we're confused. and don't know what's going on. So this leads into the quality of what is the Dhamma is the Dhamma is your investigation of the Dhamma because your relationship with the Dhamma is what you know and can be investigated. But we also recognize that there is no end to it. So where do we become satisfied? That's the real question, because there is really no end to the num to the amount of knowledge that we know. And not only that, but some of the things that we know for sure. And everybody agrees to ain't so. And uh, one example that I use is imagine that the, uh, uh, the president of the university has a, uh, a particular, let us say his daughter gets married or something like that. And so there's a reception and all of the professors at the university are standing around talking to one another. And more than likely, some of them are going to get into an argument with each other. Now, these are the professors. These are the guys that know their topics very well. And it's unlikely for the philosophy teacher uh, and the um, uh, English uh, literature teacher to get into an argument. The ones who were most likely to get into an argument with each other are two professors of mathematics, two professors of physics, two professors of psychology. They're the ones who were going to argue because they've got a substantial amount of background that they can make their position and then get into an argument about it because the, uh, and, and the soft sciences are that way uh, easily that you can easily walk into an argument about psychology. With mathematics, you've got to be a really, really good mathematician to be able to find something to argue about, but they do. <laughs> <laughs> and so, with the understanding that basically there is an underlying condition that's around everything, at the physics level. Now, uh, the physicists have worked it out that there is four kinds of force, four force fields. One is the strong nuclear force that keeps the atom uh, together at the nucleus. 
so that the protons can stay protons and stay wrapped together because they really do want to repel one another. Okay. And the, the weak force is how do these things that we don't even know what they are called electrons associate with these things? That's called the weak nuclear force. And then um, the evidence of that, in fact, the weak nuclear force and the electromagnetic force are fairly well connected together, and we can understand that kind of relationship. But when you throw gravity in, now that throws a monkey in a wrench. We still don't know what gravity is. All we know is, is that if you trip, you'll fall. <laughs> <laughs> but we don't know much about it other than that. But here we're coming now with a fifth concept, and that is, is this, this thing called conditionality or causality. Because so what if there are gluons that keep um, uh, quarks together in the proton? I want to know what's the causality of that. What's, you know, and we don't know those kind of things yet. They're still struggling with it, even though they've got a standard model. They're beginning to believe that the standard model still is missing something, which is the relationship between all of these things, the causalities. And so when we start to study the Buddha Dhamma, the Buddha's saying that means that we begin to look at these interrelationships, these causalities, these um, influences. And that this uh, put together then is what is referred to as Paticca Samuppada, which is a set of conditions or causalities that work one after another, after another, after another that bring about us being in a bad state of mind, being in dukkha, being in a being becoming dissatisfied. To where the reality is everybody has the same reality. Why do some people become satisfied with it and other people become dissatisfied with it? It's because they've got a secret magic ingredient. It's called their own past. We store that knowledge up that, in fact, old conditions will condition us in certain ways. Let us say the difference between a child every time she forgets her homework or every time she makes a mistake, her mother goes absolutely berserk with rage and the child just cowers. As opposed to another mom who is nurturing to her daughter. Oh, it's okay that you forgot your homework. You didn't do it. So let's go get that done now. Okay. And so because the two children are raised differently, then when one, for instance, gets um, stopped by the cops, she's going to bust out in tears because that's how she handled everything when she was a child. Okay. So we operate differently because of the um, education that we get as children. And this conditions everything. Why? Because if all you had was brand new data, this data, okay, this Dhamma coming in, we can't make any sense out of it. We don't know what it is. Let us say that it was um, an, an, an object that we had never seen before. One of the examples that I have would be a primitive man, let's say a hunter or getterer, and he is walking down the trail and all of a sudden sitting under the tree there is a boom box. Do you know what a boom box is? 
you got to be old enough because some people don't even know what a boombox is. It was a fad that lasted for a little while. Uh, but the point is, is that um, neither the primitive nor a 10-year-old nowadays is going to know what to do with a boombox. That's the whole point is, is that it's because we have a past. We have seen past boomboxes. We know that this is a boombox. We have seen past Christmas trees, so we know that this one is a Christmas tree. And we know that old men are like Christmas tree. And the story is that old men are like Christmas trees because the balls are all just merely decorative. <laughs> but we do know what a Christmas tree is because we've seen them before. And so what we have to do then is to recognize that anything that we see is brand new. And we have to take it as brand new, but we don't. We take what we see as new and try to compare it with something we've seen before so that we'll know what it is. This is that concept of wanting to know. We want to know what stuff is. And we don't know which leaves us in a state of confusion. And that the, one of the uh, points of the practice of the Buddha is, is that if we stay confused, then we will be unhappy. Can we stop being confused and just allow that we don't know something and be happy? Okay. Um, so here, here's an example of that. You know that there's a war in, in Ukraine, right? And you know that Putin is doing kind of badly and losing a lot of this, that, and the other thing. So now the meditation student is sitting there saying, when's the war going to be over? Guess what? Nobody knows when the war is going to be over. Guess what? Even if he's sitting in a bunker in Ukraine, and sitting there meditating, he still does not have to know when the war is going to be over in order to be happy. He can sit there and say, I don't know when the war is going to be over. I don't know when I can come out of this bunker, but I can stay in this bunker and be happy. I don't have to know the answers to my questions. Now, this is a major, major change when we begin to recognize that we don't have to know the answers to all of our questions, that we can set those questions down and be ignorant and be much, much better off than those that are searching around trying to get all the answers. And so this is the understanding the vastness of the Dhamma, understanding the fastness of the cause and effect relationship, that this stuff is so fast that it actually determines the speed of life, like a wave. It goes up. What determines that it's going to peak and crest and then come back down? What determines these photons doing this stuff? We don't really know yet, but we can be happy even though we don't know. We don't know the future. We really don't know the past. Then, in fact, um, there are 
there's there's a list of things and it's called the, the four imponderables. There are four things that we just simply do not know and cannot know. And one of them would be the results of actions. Okay, you know that within Hinduism and in Christianity and all of that kind of religious stuff, they have the, the concept that if you live a good life, you'll get a good reward. If you do good things, you'll get good results. And if you do bad things, you'll do bad. Uh, you'll get bad results. And here the Buddha comes along and says, you don't know that. <laughs> you, you don't know what your actions are going to do. You don't know what the causality is, are, are, uh, and not only that, but way off into the future, there's going to be a whole lot of other, many, perhaps trillions of causes and effects. And so what happened this time doesn't necessarily mean that that's what's going to be causing things way off into the future. And yet you'll see it in India and Thailand, Asia, and commonly is that, oh, this guy is really messed up. He's a beggar. He's got a bad life. It must have been because of something he did in the past. We don't know those kind of things. We really don't know. All we know is the situation we can see him in. Okay, so that's one of them. We do not know the results of actions. So be very careful when we talk about what's going to happen into the future, because our understanding of what's happening in the future is because we know that our causes and our actions are going to influence the future. Okay. Another one that we don't know is where did it all begin? What was the start of all of this? Now we can ask that question about the universe, we can ask that question about the Catholic Church because we do not know how the Catholic Church got started. There was too many people with too many fingers and too many pies. We, we can have some highlights. We know about Paul and we know about Constantine, but we really, really don't know all the details. For instance, of what was Alexander VI, the Pope of Rome, doing in 1500? Whatever he was doing, uh, Martin Luther didn't like it very much. <laughs> but we don't know the past. We don't know the beginnings of things. And guess what? We don't need to know the beginnings of things. So here we've covered the beginning, the old stuff we don't know, the future stuff we don't know. All we can really deal with is what's happening right now. Another one that's really interesting is that we do not know the extent of the human mind. Um, the extent of the human mind, we can talk about it in several ways. One is, is that um, uh, an example would, we do not know what Einstein was doing when he brought up the general theory of relativity because it was so spectacularly different than everything else that we know. We don't know what he did. We don't know the mind of a Buddha. You do not even know the mind of each other sitting there with each other. We don't know what's in the mind of another person. We can see by behavior. But the behavior doesn't indicate what's actually on their mind. Some people are really, really skilled liars. 
that in fact there's a, actually a guarantee that if you become skilled enough at lying, you can become a Republican politician, and then you can say anything you want. <laughs> but we really don't know what's in the mind of the people. All we know is what they present to us. And so we, and that's also true about a hundred years ago. No one a hundred years ago thought about a cell phone. They didn't exist in any way, shape, or form. Um, another one would be the first guy. They ha they have a concept that they call a horseless carriage. And so let us go back maybe 130, 150 years ago. And that one guy had the idea of let's have a carriage that does not require a horse. <laughs> And yet that guy who invented in his own mind the horseless carriage, and in fact, within a few years, he probably had one going. He put a steam engine on it, and then Daimler put a, uh, a diesel engine on it, and so did diesel and all of that kind of stuff. And this happened more than 100 years ago. These guys back then had no concept of what we're doing now, like, say, with a Tesla. A Tesla just was out of their imagination. So this is another example is you don't know what the minds of men are going to come up with. We don't know the mind of a Buddha. You don't know the mind of Putin. We don't know the mind of various people at all. That's even more ignorance. Wait a minute. I thought that we were going to get to a point where we knew everything and we were happy. No, we've got to come to the point that we don't know anything and we can still be happy. We don't know the extent. We don't know the mind of a Buddha. We don't know the future. We don't know the past. We don't know where all of this stuff comes from because it's way, way, way too big, too complicated. And in a way, that kind of makes us humble. But if we're um, not careful, we will feel like a victim to all of that stuff that we don't know. The question is, is can we be in that level of not knowing and still come out of our own misery about it? Can I remember that I don't have to know all of this stuff? I can just sit here and be happy with what I do know. That's the real teaching of the Buddha. That's the Buddha's Dhamma. That's the Buddha's thing. Is, is that we don't have to know everything, just enough things. But things are way too fast, vast. Then, in, in fact, um, uh, with the internet now, and especially YouTube, I see from time to time the, the shorts that will have a geometry lesson or maybe math with the SAT scores. Uh, you know, the SAT questions in math are pretty hard for these young kids. And I generally will stop the video just to make sure that I can do that. I also have various things that I've memorized. For instance, Newton's law of gravity. I can spout that for you right here. Guess what? I can't spout Einstein's theory of gravity 
because it's a half a page long of math. <laughs> and I can't do that kind of math. I'm just so ignorant. I feel sometimes like that. I get the idea that I don't know any math at all because I don't know it all. And yet the kind of math that I do know is really, really practical. An example of that would be matrix calculus. I took the course in matrix calculus. Now that's pretty interesting where you got to do calculus on every cell to find out what's in the, in that matrix. And another one is numerical analysis. Numerical analysis is that level of mathematics that goes into what is a floating point number and how can we represent it on the computer. You've probably heard about double precision floating point numbers and all of that. We've got a state now. But in the old days when I was studying it, numerical analysis was still trying to figure out what is floating point. Yeah, you know what I'm talking about? If you're into math, you know what I'm talking about when I use floating point, okay? And how accurate it is because there's errors built right into it. There's no such thing as a number that we can. I mean, with integers, yeah, we've got that, we think. <laughs> Except that when we say an apple plus an apple is two apples, no, we're missing all the complexity. That those apples are not, they're not equivalent. They're not equal. And so here's where we come into the real Dhamma of the Buddha is to understand that the mind has this desire to know. We really, really want to know. And the reason that we want to know, there's a rationale behind it, and that is, is that we need to know whether it's dangerous or not. But that's where all of this got started. That if we're walking down the trail and we see a strange animal, the first thing we want to know is this animal dangerous or not? Okay, so uh, in our instinctual level, that's where it all comes from. And yet here we are trying to solve a, um, a math problem that's on YouTube. And if I solve it, I live. Yeehaw. And if I can't solve it, I die. So that's where that comes from is, is the life or death. We have to know in order to stay alive because we've got this self-preservation instinct. And guess what? The reality is, is that whether I solve that math problem or not is irrelevant. It's irrelevant. The question for me is, is am I enjoying figuring out this math problem? Even if I get it wrong, I'm learning something. I like that. So this is the way of looking at it is, is that instead of having it the normal child's way of looking at the world is, is that I've got to know what's going on because it might be dangerous. And we grow up with that model. And so everything that we have to know becomes kind of a life or death situation for us. And when we begin to practice Anapanasati, guess what? All of those questions about all that stuff we don't know, especially questions about the Dhamma and questions about how to practice and questions about where this is going and questions about why I'm unhappy and questions after questions after questions. Within this context, this is called a doubt, not knowing, a jiva, ignorance. 
and ignorance is at the foundation of all suffering. This is uh, listed in the second noble truth. A lot of people will say that all dukkha is caused by clinging. No, the clinging was caused by ignorance. Okay, that our greed and our ill will, we let that go because we're ignorant of the fact that this is causing us trouble. And so ignorance and ignorance of the Dhamma. So this talk has just started off about Dhamma and has wound up being talking about ignorance because that's the whole point. Dhamma is too big for us to understand. We're ignorant of the Dhamma. Can we be happy that we know enough of the Dhamma to know that we can be happy without having to know everything? And so in these talks that we give, I like students to ask questions because that gives us something to talk about. But when we're sitting alone, in seclusion, nobody around, we can call this practice or whatever. I mean, laying in bed, we, we get up, we, we wake up in the morning and there we are laying in bed. What kind of thoughts are we having? We go to, go to bed at night, but we don't go to sleep immediately. We have thoughts. When we're driving the car, we're not driving the car. We're thinking about a whole lot of stuff and some of that happens to be driving the car. But mostly, the mind is just looking around, spinning, having ideas, writing emails, um, having arguments with people that were not finished, and all of this kind of stuff, because we want to get it right. We want to know. We want to fix it. And there's so much stuff that we can't fix. And so when we're sitting there in meditation, the right thing to do is say, I don't have to know. I do not have to compose that email. I do not have to do anything. I can sit here and enjoy the fact that everything that's coming in is marvelous and I don't have to make sense of it. That this is where the teachings of the Buddha come in with perception. In the Pali it's also known um, as both Sanya and also Nama Rupa. And what that means is, is that when we see an object with our eyes or hear something with our ears, we want to figure out what it is. We want to make sense of it. We can't leave it just the way that it is as raw input. We want to process that input to come up with output. But in fact, uh, uh, Alex and I talked about this big time the other day. All right, so the human being has these three stages of taking input, doing a bunch of processing to try to come up with the answer, and then we have the output. The output eventually then through feelings as a motivator becomes action. That's our output. So we take something in, we process it, we come with an output, and that output then becomes an action. And the Buddha says, let's start backing that stuff up. Let's start looking at what actions that we're wanting to take. Let's look at how we feel. And then eventually we look at the fact that we're creating the reality that we feel about. How do we create it? We take the new input. We make sense out of it. By making sense out of it, we just changed it from reality into what I understand. 
I've made sense out of it to myself. That's what we mean by perception. And then that internal thing that we have just created is now not real. It's a concept. And we create a lot of concepts. Our, our society is full of concepts. And it is the concepts that we act upon, not reality. We don't operate upon the real. We operate upon the concept that we generated using the input that we received as part of the input, but the rest of the input comes from old data, old processing. Okay. So in computers, copying a file can be done really fast because there's very little processing. You bring that into the buffer and then you put it back out. And so uh, with, with a good uh, uh, laptop, you can process data at, oh, maybe 150 megabytes a second. But if that processor, if that computer is doing other stuff, for instance, it's got problems with its buffers and it has to bring this stuff, wait a minute, I don't have enough room for the buffer, et cetera, like that, then that's going to slow down the processing speed so that our output is going to be much slower than it could be. And so what we're getting at here using the computer as an example is us Dhamma dudes want to stop doing so much processing and so much understanding and just get more data. Just keep getting new data and then we connect the dots or we process new data to come up with a new result rather than taking new data stop taking new data, process it with old data, and come up with an understanding. And so what this means is, is that we look and we keep looking and we keep looking and we keep looking and we keep looking. This is one's right noble view or viewing as opposed to ordinary uh, thought is to look at something long enough to figure out what it is, make a concept out of it, store that concept away for the future use so that we don't have to think anymore about it. And now we stumble around because the concept that we made up so long ago doesn't fit anymore. A lot of the concepts that we live our lives by, we made those concepts when we were children and we still live by those concepts. That in fact, much of what I know about Christianity is 50 years old. I'm running with a whole bunch of old concepts about Christianity. And I think that the thing has changed some. In fact, there's not even a thing there. There's a whole Dhammakai of things called Christianity. There's what? I've heard 50,000 different denominations. I didn't go to them all. I don't know Christianity at all. <laughs> it's funny. Oh, sorry. Yes, go ahead, DJ. It was funny um, you mentioned that. Um, I just wanted uh, to bring up because uh, one of my uh, friends, um, she's she's like practices like Christianity. She's like, both of the people I talk to, like they don't really know, like they know Christianity because of the culture, but because they don't really practice like too much or what have you, right? They don't like know it too much because uh, we were kind of having a little bit of a cross dialogue right so that was kind of interesting i don't know it just popped up right mm -hmm. <laughs> interesting thought well, though really the reality is, is that even christianity is too big for any christian to understand yeah yeah it's way too complicated yeah and all we can do is sort of touch some of the high points but we don't even know what the high points are for this particular group yeah. or that particular oh. group 
Go ahead. <laughs> Ask and ye shall receive. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Right. Well, guess what? That's a very, very common statement within Christianity, and it doesn't work. Mm-hmm. I mean, people ask for raises. They don't get them. They ask for a break. They don't get it. They ask for grandma to not die in a hospital, and she dies. Okay, so asking <laughs> and thou shalt receive has a particular quality to it. We have to ask in a particular way with a particular attitude. And part of that is is to ask for the things that we know we can get. Now that's wisdom. And ignorance is going around asking for all kinds of things, thinking some magic sky daddy is going to drop down it in the chimney and and give it to us for Christmas or something. And we wind up being disappointed because we don't get what we want. And so that's a very important question about that. That's in fact, we do that every time we sit down and start looking at our thoughts, every time we start practicing Anapanasati, there that whole point is, is what am I asking for? What am I asking for? Because some of the things I'm going to sit here and ask for, I'm not going to get. Like for instance, I can lay in the bed and enjoy the moment, or I can lay in the bed and think about getting that email written. Guess what? Thinking about an email does not get the email. It doesn't get it. Thinking about an email doesn't get an email written. So why think about the email right now? Why don't I think about something that I can get right now? Like a really, really long, deep, easy breath that feels so nice. So this is the way that we practice is, is that we have to start recognizing in this regard of what's worth asking for. Because almost always, as we've been talking about in this, much of what we go around asking for is information. We want data. We want confirmation. Am I right or what? Because if I'm wrong, I'm dead. Ego death being wrong okay and so we want to be right all the time people who are right all the time i know i've been one (laughs) miserable assholes (laughs) guys who are right all the time are unhappy people and they go around making everybody else unhappy too And so if we can stop wanting to know the answers to all the questions, maybe we can give some of the junior assholes around a chance to be miserable (laughs) on their own behalf (laughs) rather than me doing it to them. The junior assholes. (laughs) Oh, good. There's a distinction, though, about knowing everything and wanting to know everything versus knowing not or not knowing anything, because that's also the opposite. Both of those are extremes. What we're looking for is a middle ground, a middle path to where what we do know is enough. 
enough to get this job done. What is this job? To figure out I don't have any jobs. That's what this job is. This job is to figure out I don't have any jobs to do. Isn't that marvelous? I don't have anything to do. Because that means that I can get what I want very easily because I don't want anything because I'm already satisfied. And so getting ourselves into that state is easy enough to do if we can remember that that's what our practice is. A lot of us will sit down and start thinking about this, that and the other thing. And not recognizing that this is not. Giving us what we're actually looking for here, that we have to start making a change intentionally. But that goes back to personality view that if we think that we can't change, then we won't and we will stay miserable. But if we understand that we can change, now we have a chance. The question is, are we going to remember that we can make a change right now? I don't have to think about that email this, that needs to be written. Then in fact needs to be written is the first thing that needs to be changed. Right now, I don't need to write that email. Right now, everything is okay. So let's stay with just enough information to be happy. I don't have to know where the restlessness comes from. I can just be at rest. I don't have to have the answers to that question. I can just be happy right now. Even if I never know why the sky is blue. By the way, I do. <laughs> it has to do with the spectral analysis of nitrogen, but let's not go there. <laughs> Let us just say the average Joe Blow doesn't know why the sky is blue. If he cares, he's unhappy. If he doesn't care, he's okay. So what that you know means what I mean, is- used to say, why is the sky blue? And we would say it's because God loves the infantry. <laughs> are all the infantry blue <laughs> they have little blue discs they wear on their uniform oh. <laughs> <laughs> you know. i think that has a cause and effect relationship backwards which we should mention also mm. is that part of our ignorance part of our not knowing is that we think that one thing causes another simply because we see this and then we see that and we think that they're related. The relationship between those two things is in my own mind. And that may be the extent of it. There may be no other relationship between them. And often because uh, we're slow, we see the results first and then we see the cause and we get it backwards because I saw the results and then I saw the cause. That means that all the cause was the result of the result in the first place. And so we get them backwards. And so often our cause and effect relationship are backwards. Often we don't know. Often we want to know. And this is what causes a lot of human misery is wanting something like answers to questions. And we don't have any chance of getting those answers not a chance not now anyway and right now is when we feel bad about it mm -hmm, mm -hmm. 
And so the thing to do is to wake up to, I want to know something. And then convince yourself, you don't need to know this right now. You're okay right now. What you have right now is enough. It's good enough. And this is something that is difficult for many people to practice. And so understanding that we already have enough. We've got everything that we need. These Dhamma talks that we're having is just reestablishing that. That the Dhamma is actually very, very easy. The Buddha saying is uh, easy to understand and not much to it. The problem is, is that all of the other stuff from our past and the way that our culture lives, uh, uh, operates and all of this kind of stuff is, is that we're thrown immediately back into, oh, I need to know this or, oh, I need to know that. And now we're back into a feeling of insecurity, unsafe, unsatisfied because of a piece of data. Guess what? Almost always data is not fatal. Pieces of information is not fatal. Not looking at what's going on can often be really dangerous, though. But what we're talking about is conceptualized data. Data from someplace else. Okay. Like the law of gravity. I do not need to know Newton's law of gravity. I only need to know to look at where I'm going so I don't slip and fall. And so this is where we're uh, looking at it. This is why the Buddha's Dhamma is so strikingly different than the big Dhamma. Because the big Dhamma is overwhelmingly huge. There is so much to it that no human being could possibly know at all. And yet, we can know enough. Just enough. And that's the Buddhist teaching. To know that it's our ignorance and wanting to know that causes much of the troubles that we have. And it's okay to be ignorant. That in fact, you've heard this statement before, ignorance is bliss, and a whole lot of people are going around trying to prove to you why that's not true. <laughs> okay. Here you are ignorantly driving your car down the road, and you have an accident because you're not watching where you're going. Okay. But the fact is, I do not need to know how the clutch mechanics works in order to drive the car. I do not know, I need to know how the spark plug ignites the fuel under pressure inside of a piston engine. I don't need to know any of that kind of stuff. I do not need to know about the plastic uh, graphite shield that uh, Elon Musk has put, uh, put around the, um, the rotor in order to make the Plaid engine as powerful and as fast as it is. I don't need to know that. But I do need to know a plaid. I need to know that thing. <laughs> <laughs> Except that I don't. If I really want to know that plaid, guess what? There are no plaids in Thailand. <laughs> <laughs> Am I going to be miserable or what? 
<laughs> well, that's my choice, you see. If I want something that I can't have because I want to know all about it, I want to own it. I want it to do for me what I can't do for myself. In fact, the only reason that I want that plaid is because I've heard it's one of the best chick magnets. <laughs> I mean, electric motors and, and, and big engines and all of that with all of that magnetic radiation, I'm sure it's going to collect chicks. I mean, there's going to be chicks stuck to it. <laughs> all right, so. This is the whole quality that we have to begin to understand is, is that, yeah, the amount of information out there is vast and it's constantly changing. Everything is in flux. But I don't need to know all of that stuff. All I need to know is, is that I don't need to know all of that stuff to be happy. And that's where the Dhamma comes in. That's the actual teachings of the Buddha. The Buddhist thing is, is that all those things out there are not necessary for you to be happy. So does anybody have any questions about this? Oh, yes, David. OK, um, so you said that this desire we have to know things is caused by this feeling of danger mm -hmm. instinct we instinct. are instinctively we want to know if we feel our survival is threatened if we don't know right mm -hmm. so do you think this has to do this relates to like this wanting to know what happens after death like and all these concepts about like rebirth and precisely we want to know how do we want to know is there a heaven or a hell we want to know i mean really hell that's the one that we really want to know about is there a <laughs> hell or not <laughs> okay why because hells are dangerous right 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 yeah so that's... but if they're dangerous and you can tell people about it then you can control their behavior by saying if you don't do what i tell you to do god's going to send you to hell Okay, so if we look at it from that perspective, we really are looking at the fact that it's still a, a self-preservation instinct issue. That we don't want to die, we want to live. Therefore, mm -hmm. even if I do die, will I still live anyway? It's the desire to live. And the desire and to know. Guess what? Guess what? You're alive right now, and you're not getting a load of how wonderful it is right now to be alive right now. You're worried about something that's just so far off into the future, we have nothing but a concept. Yeah. And the reality is, is that life is not a concept. The reality is life is to be lived and to be lived happily and fully. If we can remember to do that. <laughs> I used to be very troubled about this idea of not knowing with like life and death and such things, most especially within the Western framework of Christianity. It was such a bother to me all the time. And eventually I had to make a peace with it. And one of the ways that I made a peace with it is I thought to myself, well, hey, they tell you if you accept Jesus Christ in your, your heart as your Lord and Savior, then you're saved. I don't know if Jesus Christ is going to come back. I don't know if he's real, but I'll bet I'll know if he shows up directly in front of me, at which point it'll be impossible for me to say, well, you're not my Lord and Savior. I mean, you may have just come back from the dead and you may have done everything that you were supposed to do, but I'll reject it. I figure the fool does that at that point. 
But until then, I'd really like to maintain an idea that this is what we've got, you know, and if this is what we've got to work with in this moment, it'll probably be something like that in the future, but it'll probably be different. And if uh -huh. we don't have to know about whether or not, hey, is Jesus coming on uh, 2012? Like the Mayans said, the Mayans didn't know Jesus. They just knew zero, you know, and that was a big deal for them. Well, maybe they did. They just didn't call him Jesus. Mm. Okay. So let's look at that particular concept for just a moment. And that is, okay, kid, you've got a magical buddy that's going to get you out of every problem that you can run into. If that kid actually believes that, there's several things going on. And one of them is, is he says, okay, because I have a secret ingredient, because I've got a secret sauce, call Jesus. That means that I can handle any situation. Jesus is going to save my butt and he's going to get me out of it. The fact is, is that people who take Jesus as their savior, when the going gets tough, they forget all about Jesus. He's not there for them. If Jesus was there for them, then they would have the attitude, oh, I can handle this. Now, the next quality that's looking into that is, is that they say you have to have Jesus in your heart. Okay, well, he doesn't have to be standing beside me in order to protect me in those fine robes. He's just a, uh, let us say, an attribute of my life, an attribute of my heart. And so my Jesus will get me out of any problem. Okay, so in this regard, now I'm beginning slowly in conversation here to turn Jesus back into the Buddha Dhamma. Okay, can we have the Buddha Dhamma? The Buddha Dhamma is going to save you. Why? Because you remember to apply it. So all we have to do is remember to apply Jesus to any situation. And we've got it made. If Jesus people would practice Christianity like that, it would be a marvelous religion. But they don't. Whenever they really need Jesus, they forget all about him. This is sati. We have to remember we have to remember, we have to remember, this is the teaching of the Buddha, is you have to remember that Jesus is in your heart. The whole, not just Jesus, the whole kingdom of God is within you. And in the Greek, this is the word is uh, basilica theos, a basilica. The biggest, grandest cathedrals are the basilica. The whole key, the big ones, okay? There's only a few basilicas. There's one in Rome and one in Paris and things like this. There's only a few basilicas, which is a vast temple filled with really, really good air. <laughs> in fact, this air is so good, we can call it God itself. And here we are breathing in the air, the life of God. It's a life force. And so we can take Christianity this way. That Christianity actually is a working viable system if we would remember to apply it correctly, to apply the real Jesus that actually taught this way. Um, that in fact, occasionally something will come up uh, in some comment or whatever like that is, Jesus is my Lord and Savior. Jesus is the greatest guy in the world. 
And my little answer to it is, is that Jesus was a wandering bum who knew Buddha Dhamma. And he's out there teaching Buddha Dhamma. And you guys have screwed it up. If you'd listen to what Jesus said instead of trying to make him into a magical being, you know, and listen to what Jesus said. Like, um, the, the lilies of the field and the foxes have their nest, but the Son of Man has no place to rest his head. In other words, let's just be homeless. Let's be at home wherever we are. And then he talks about getting all dressed up to go to Sunday church in the old days. And he says, you don't need any of that kind. I mean, the uh, you're beautiful enough just as you are. You don't need to get all fancy dressed up and yet in human um, existence. Clothes make the man. Clothes make the man. Okay. That in fact, an astronaut, you have to see him as an astronaut because he's wearing the clothes of an astronaut. You know, these big white suits with a helmet and all of that. If he's not wearing that suit, then he's not an astronaut. He's just a human being, you know. Okay. So the clothes make the man. But in this cathedral that we have within, that's a holy place. And recognize that we actually have a holy place. We are the temple of God, every one of us. And we should treat it like that. That this is marvelous. This is the best there is. There is nothing better than this. But we forget that often. We forget that we've got everything that we need. We're already good enough. And so we have to remember. We have to practice to remember that sati is a skill to be developed, looking, investigating, seeing what's real without adding a bunch of old crap to it and let it just be real. Investigating this present moment, what's happening right now, that's a skill to be developed. And then the one that's most missing is the effort that it takes to make that change. We can change. We do not have to be stuck in the personality that we're uh, that we thought that we were stuck with that you're a moving target. Sometimes you're a narcissist. Sometimes you're a psychopath. Sometimes you're, you know, uh, we just move back and forth all over the place. Every human being is capable of all human behavior. We're all capable of that. We're all capable of being the worst tyrants. We're all capable of being uh, the sweetest dude in town. Your choice, if you can remember to make the choice. I've heard it said before, all of the devils and all of the gods are inside of us. Mm -hmm. They're there in that basilica. Mm -hmm. <laughs> we have a real cathedral. Can you remember that you've already got everything you need? You've got everything you need. Let's enjoy the fact that we've got life. You're still alive. That's marvelous. And the breath that you're breathing is the breath of God. The very best there is, the highest quality. We've got the Dhammakai on our side. If we can accept it that way, rather than saying, oh, well, I don't know. Oh, I need to know. Oh, I got to figure it out. Is the Dhammakai really on my side or what? You know, that then we are all confused and. So. 
so much for Dhamma, so much for reality, so much for ignorance. Let's just let it all be because it's not my job. It's not my job to fix everything. It's not my job to fix society. It's not my job to stop wars. It's not my job to cool off the, the economy or the temperature of the planet. My job is to be happy whatever the temperature might be. Turn it all back around, all of that marvelous, all that dangerous stuff out there is not my job. My job is to be able to be happy right here, right now, without having to solve any problems, write any emails, straighten anybody's wrong attitudes, Fix that Christian preacher so he preaches the right thing. None of that business is your business. Our business is to be happy. In fact, not just your business, it's your obligation. You have an obligation to smile and put on a happy face with everybody that you meet. That's your only job. That's your only job. Can you find that smile? Can you find that happy face? That's what we owe ourselves. And then that's what we owe everybody else is to come out of our misery, come out of our dukkha and see how nice things actually already are. Ignorant as I am, it's still good enough. Ah. What a relief that is. I don't have to know everything. (laughs) DJ, do you have any comments about this? Oh, um, amen. (laughs) (laughs) Um, David, how about you? Do you have any comments about this? Yeah, I guess the only thing I need to know is how to live this moment well. How to be happy in this moment. That's yes. it. That's all we need to know. Yeah. <laughs> Plane trips and bookings and travels, all of that is really not necessary. It takes a long time to figure out that your home is where your buddy is. Mm. <laughs> Wherever you are, there you are. And it's your choice. Am I going to be here badly or am I going to be here happily? Mm-hmm. And if I'm worried about out, out there, then I'm going to be miserable here. But if I don't care about what out there, then I can be happy right here. That's basically the entire teaching <laughs> of the Buddha right there. Dukkha, Dukkha Naroda. See it mm-hmm. and come right out of it. That you are. Huh? I said, is that you, Mara? (laughs) Right. Can we see it? Can we see our own misery? And then throw it right out. That's all there is to the teaching of the Buddha. And yet, this one little teaching handles every circumstance, every possibility, every situation. In fact, one time, I think it was a couple of weeks ago, um, that I said, I'm perfectly happy to be in hell for the rest of eternity, so long as I don't have to know about it. 
Yes, sir. That if, that if I'm completely convinced in the deepest heart of hearts that this hell that I'm in is paradise, I can handle it. It's when I think that this situation is hell, that's when I got a problem. the nice thing about the teaching is the more you practice it, not only does it take care of this moment, it makes it so much better when you take care of the next moment. It just builds on itself in that way. It's such exactly. A beautiful thing. The, the skill of handling this moment well is the very skills that we're developing to handle the next moment. And the next one after that. And even the next one with a cop in it. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. And so this is how we do. We don't worry about the cops. All we worry about is, can we handle this moment? This is it. We don't need to know everything. We can just be happy. So guys, let's finish this talk. This has been a really good one. I really enjoyed this one. This is a good one. We can talk about ignorance because that's that's ultimately the biggest issue there is, is ignorance. Can you handle your ignorance? Because you're not going to get all the data you want. Can you handle being stupid? Yeah, <laughs> I could be stupid happily. I love it. Thank you, Zanga. Thank you, Damarato. Yes. Mm -hmm. you Thank again you, soon. Zach. Thank you for coming. I really appreciate you being Thanks here. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Every Friday. <laughs> <laughs> Take care, you okay. guys. All right. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Bye. 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 <laughs>